Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast, downloaded over three-quarters of a million times in over 150 countries, and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim Adil Savage, coming to you from Pulua country in Tasmania. This is episode 242 of the Australian Hiker Podcast, and in this week's episode, we talk about the South Coast Track, Expectations versus Reality. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. In this podcast episode, we discuss our pre-trip expectations for the Tasmanian-based 85km South Coast Track and compare them to the reality of the trip itself. While I had certain expectations of the trip, some of which panned out as expected, there were things that ended up going very differently than expected. In this episode, we discuss how the trip panned out and make some recommendations that will help you get the best out of this experience if you ever look at doing this track. We hope you enjoy. Okay, well, here we are um, looking at uh, the, the, the planning and uh, the reality um, of the South Coast track. So the first thing we'll start with is the transport, the logistics, the accommodation, and what stuck out for you, Tim, in terms of uh, what what you were expecting and and what didn't uh, eventuate? I must admit, I've I've sort of lost a bit of um, confidence in the Australian airline industry at the moment. <laughs> um, there's just been too many cancellations of flights, and and quite often at, at short notice. So even though I potentially could have turned up on the day uh, and then virtually get a, a, a transport over to Cambridge Airport to take me down to Metaluca, that was a bit of a risk. Uh, so I ended up going down there the day prior uh, and staying with relatives. Although, again, if you don't have relatives or you're not a, a Tasmanian local, uh, there's plenty of good accommodation options in Hobart itself. The transport to Melaleuca, uh, which is uh, the main trailhead, uh, is from Cambridge Airport, which is only a short drive from Hobart International Airport. So in that case there, it was a pretty easy sort of task to get to there. Arrived well and truly in time, and we, or we, I, you know, I, do, I must admit, I do say we a lot in this episode in the last few, only because I'm so used to travelling with other people, and typically Jill. And I uh, wasn't there. And you weren't there. <laughs> so uh, I was wondering who the we were. <laughs> uh, but I, I had a group of nine that were travelling with me uh, as, as their own group and another group of two. So it's particularly for the first half of the trip, I was seeing people on quite a regular basis and was camping with people on a regular basis. Okay. And did they overtake you um, along the way or did they fall behind or...? Uh, yes and no. The um, the group of two was definitely doing it at a much slower pace than what I was. Uh, the group of nine was doing it at a slower pace only because they were taking a bit more time and taking it a bit more at a leisurely pace. Uh, 
but it consisted of a group of um, uh, adult males approximately my age, uh, a bit younger, uh, and a group of 17 to 20-year-olds who, who you know, would, would leave camp half an hour, an hour after I did and go screaming past me <laughs> a, few, a few hours into the that day. That makes you feel young, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's certainly, uh, they, they certainly managed to power along quite well. Still with the transport side of things, the transport from Cambridge Airport uh, by Par Avion, which is the, the little uh, air, air, airline company that takes you down and transports bushwalkers. Um, the trip itself was quite good, uh, but there was issues on the day. So instead of getting in at roughly about 3.30, I think we landed in at roughly at about 4.20, 4.30. There was a bit of delay. Um, so it's uh, um, it's it's a, one of those sort of expectations where – you can only you're in the hands of the weather gods to a great extent, and this was probably the biggest worry for me for this whole trip. That if the weather has had been really bad, uh, or the winds really strong, and the planes couldn't fly, that potentially delayed the trip. Uh, and there was always the potential that if you know there was extreme weather conditions, it could have delayed the trip by a couple of days and potentially put the trip in, in jeopardy. So if you are planning this trip, uh, always allow yourself a bit of leeway or a plan B just in case. So we might start uh, looking at the accommodation and the first uh, series of huts is at Malaluka, which is where you fly into. Yeah, so my original plan was to fly into Malaluka, stay there overnight and start walking the next day. And having arrived... I was aware of what the daylight hours were in uh, in Hobart. You know, it's it's pretty much a, uh, Australia's southernmost major city, and they have uh, it's light at five o'clock. It's light at nine o'clock uh, at that time of the year in December. So that's eight a.m., five a.m., and nine p.m. Yeah, that's it's, a long day. It's a, it's a long day. So I thought rather than arriving in at sort of four or five o'clock at Melaleuca and then just, then just sitting there twiddling my thumbs, I'd start walking. But the potential is that if you don't feel like it, you can arrive at Melaleuca, uh, which was my original plan, uh, and either start walking or there's two cabins there uh, with toilets uh, that are there for, for use for hikers. So are they the only cabins on the trail or are there other cabins or campsites? No, along they're, they're the only cabins on the trail. There are campsites, but they're the only physical buildings on the trail. So this trail is a wilderness trail. It's a wilderness experience. Um, and while there are toilets, which we'll talk about a bit later on, uh, really you're sleeping in a tent or sleeping in the open. Okay, so um, why don't we talk about the facilities at the, the campsites then, so the toilets? Okay, so when we're talking about facilities, we're talking about toilets, uh, and these are basically just composting toilets. Um, they're, I must admit, the first campsite I came to, which was at Point Eric, I'm thinking. I'm sure there was supposed to be a toilet here somewhere, and it was. They never. They never really make them an obvious feature. Uh, one of them was probably around about 150 meters away from entering the camp, uh, but in most cases they were a bit easier to find. Okay, so you've got to go on a little bit of a hunt to to find them. Find the facilities. There usually are signs there, but you've got to know once you get you get a, a, a grasp of where things are generally located, they're a bit easier to find. Now, in relation to the toilets, they are, there is no toilet paper, so you need to bring your own toilet paper, whatever that amounts to for the length of the trip. That, that's the 
10 pieces per day that I fold up and uh, send send us off with. Uh, people are horrified that that's not quite enough, but uh, when you've got to make it last, you make it last. <laughs> One comment I would make, uh, and it's not really a facility as such, I decided one day that I needed to use the facilities and there was none, so I started digging a hole. Um, it was actually quicker to walk to the next toilet facility. Uh, <laughs> the soil is really hard uh, and yet obviously you can't really, you know, the choice is to dig it in a beach, which is not particularly environmentally friendly. So, But if you're trying to dig into soil, it is rock hard. Right. Uh, more so than the Australian Alps that I'm used to. Uh, and uh, yeah, you're better off to time your... Uh, ablutions to when there's a toilet facility available. Right. And at the campsites, are there things like a um, an outdoor kitchen or a table or anything like that? In most cases, there's pretty much nothing. The uh, When they're talking about campsites, it's flat bits of soil uh, that have been cleared. Uh, occasionally, you'll get some jerry-rigged tables and chairs. So there was... Um, a couple that we went to, or the that we went to as a as campsite that had bits of mesh on rock uh, to act as a table, and a bit of timber on rock, and a couple of pieces of, of stone that you could sit on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and there were actually there was one campsite that had a couple of uh, I don't know who did them, a couple of uh, very basic chairs, but there were one chair for the entire campsite. So, okay. <laughs> you know, when you when you had sort of 12, 13, 14 people, there was one chair. So what was the busiest campsite? How many people would have been at the busiest? I think we had a few nights where there was a group of two, uh, a group of nine, so that's 11, and myself, which was 12. Yeah. Uh, And in most cases, that's the biggest number. Uh, And that was the first, second and third nights uh, that that's what we ended up with. Uh, and then the then the group sort of spread apart. Right. So I ended up having three nights camping by myself, and the the other three nights uh, camping with other people. Right. Okay. And do you have to um, camp at these campsites, or are you able to camp at any point along the way? There are what's classed as major campsites, and the major camp campsites have toilets. Uh, there are minor campsites and also emergency campsites that don't. They are just bits of flat ground. And, in fact, a couple of the ones I stayed in, flat ground was a pretty subjective term. Um, there was one that I stayed at, it was a slope and there was nothing, no other way you could describe it. A bit it. of rush of blood to your head, was yeah. there? Yeah. Um, so uh, there was one night where I didn't camp at a designated site. And in all honesty, I'm not sure. I'll need to check on that. Uh, when I do the written write-up of this trail. Um, but I decided I needed to stop. Uh, I was starting to lose focus uh, and that's not a safe way to hike. Really, you get to that sort of point, uh, it's time to stop. Uh, otherwise, you end up putting yourself in a situation where you may need rescuing, which is not going to be helpful for anyone. Yeah, and I think that was the that was the night you were probably only a couple of kilometres from the campsite. I was probably two kilometres from the campsite, which was Surprise Bay. Uh, it only took me less than an hour to get there the next morning. Uh, but I, had I have continued on that night, I would have had to have done a done the extra hour, which wouldn't have been an overly long day. Uh, I would have still finished in the light. And then I would have had to have done an inlet crossing again, right. having a bit of bit of um, 
mental uh, sharpness is probably something that you needed to have at that point. Yeah, so it turned out to be uh, the best thing to do under the circumstances. It did. Now, that did put me behind an hour or two f- uh, for the trip from there, uh, from then on, but it was the safer option to go through and do. You, you've mentioned along the way that this was a pretty tough uh, trail, so let's talk about the trail tread and uh, the, I guess the diversity of what you, what you were walking on. I think when most people think about the South Coast Track, if you do a search of the South Coast Track on the internet and look at images, you tend to see images with lots of people sinking into mud. Uh, and, that, and that's that's the or waist deep in water. That's the yeah, other one I yeah. see. Yeah. They're the typical sort of images that tend to come up. Uh, so there was an expectation prior to the trip that'd be a lot of mud, and there was. Uh, but in some areas, they've started to do some remediation. They're putting in uh, mesh boardwalks, which is the new material they're using for a lot of trails around Australia. Uh, and these, uh, uh, there was one area in particular where I was expecting uh, to have a lot of boggy, wet area and spent probably you know, a period of about two and a half kilometres walking on mesh where had I've been walking on open ground, it would have been very wet and very muddy. So that they're starting to make improvements to the trail bit by bit. But did, you did find a pretty deep mud hole though. Yeah, so there was... The mesh, the metal mesh. There was the ter- the older traditional timber, uh, uh, normally two two sla- uh, two boards side by side, uh, not always above water, uh, and then there were some muddy areas, and it's it's really hard when you try to uh, not destroy the trail and not make braided trail by by creating your own trail. Um, uh, and sometimes I did that. So you walked through the middle of it, did you? Yeah, I walked through the middle of it where I could. Uh, I must admit, I got a bit blasé at one point, and um, this was just past the turn off to Osmeridian Beach, uh, which was uh, where the group of nine split apart and decided to do their own thing. Uh, I kept on going, and about 300 metres down the trail, I thought, yep, I'll walk, I'll do the right thing, I'll walk through the, the muddy area. I didn't check the depth of the mud, which was my, my <laughs> fault, and then su- sunk crotch depth up in, up in the mud. <laughs> it just sunk, it wasn't a slow sink, it was one, straight into it. One leg, two legs? Both legs. Oh, my goodness. Um, How'd you get out of that? Well, I just sat there for a minute or two. I thought, oh, yeah, this is lovely. Uh, thankfully, I had my rain pants on. Uh, and then I just basically, I was, you know, I was by the, you know, I could reach the sides of the trail. Uh, and then just uh, uh, drag myself out slowly. So uh, it was a, an interesting thing. And that, that section in particular. I'm sorry, that would have been so funny. Well, all I could think of was there was no, no one to take a photo of me. <laughs> if, at least if I'm going to do that, I should have a photo. It's one of the disadvantages of travelling solo. Um, the trail tend to vary as well. So there are some of the hills going up. They were very much steps uh, with crushed rock. Uh, coming down, uh, the trail varied to being natural, but natural to the point. So as an example, coming down the ironbound mountain ranges, uh, that's a, a high point for, as a walker was 910 metres. And going up, it was steep, but it was manageable. Uh, and going down, uh, it was walking down pretty much a creek bed for three and a half hours, four hours, 
Uh, it was very wet, very slippery, lots of tree blowdowns, blow so you're having to go under, over, and around. Uh, and uh, it was a very slow process. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about lots of water. Uh, is it this time of year? Is it unseasonal wet weather? Um, you know, can you give us a bit of a, a sense of what to expect um, through, throughout the year, irrespective of when you go? Tasmania is one of those sort of places, particularly in the high, high country areas, where you can get snow pretty much any month of the year. And uh, the season, I suppose, for uh, the South Coast track is probably around about late November through to maybe mid-April, uh, with sort of um, that February-March sort of period probably being potentially the driest uh, but also the hottest as well. So, you know, the potential is to get 30-odd degree plus temperatures, which is going to make things a lot harder. But, you know, there's a, the combination between do you want rain, do you want water availability, do you want dry conditions? And that's going to generate a different experience for uh, uh, each time you do this. So I've, I've talked to people who have done this trip in four days before, but they would have had good conditions to do it in. So yeah, not uh, not lots of water and not crotch deep mud. No, no. <laughs> I think the other thing I'd comment on the trail itself is, and then we'll talk about things to bring along later on. Um, so tracking poles uh, are essential. Uh, you need to have those four points of contact, and uh, uh, I there was no one I saw on trail that didn't have tracking poles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we'll look at the um, the distances. Um, you had planned to do this in uh, five days. Five days walking. So I was going to fly into Melaleuca, not go anywhere the first day. Five days walking, and then um, then get transport back to Hobart. Okay, um, and it took you seven days. Seven days walking, um, and and that includes the transport transport back to Hobart. So I added it an additional day time wise but I also added two additional days of walking. Right. Okay. And um, normally the, the recommendation is six to eight days. Six to eight days, yeah. Now, So it sounds right? It sounds about right. Um, I think, as I said, I, I arrived at Melaleuca, and I, I, even, even before I'd gone to Melaleuca, I thought I'm not going to sit there for four or five hours and do nothing while, I, while it's light. Uh, so I just decided to walk 13.4 kilometres the first night. Uh, and that's probably the best thing to do. It's you know, unless you're really being cruisy about what you're doing, uh, it's a much easier process to uh, uh, just do that walk. You've got plenty of time. Uh, the trek in that first day from Melaleuca to Point Eric is probably the fastest of the whole trip, uh, and probably the cleanest of the whole trip as right. well. Okay. And then day two, um, you'd plan to do eighteen point six, and that's what you did. Yep, roughly about the same sort of distance, uh, and that was from Point Eric through to Louisa River. Um, again, not overly difficult, uh, a bit more mud on that day, but not not horrendous, uh, and that was getting ready to, that was a bit of an ascent up and over, uh, I think, uh, now don't get me, don't quote me on this, I think it was the Red Hills, uh, and that was a... Uh, an ascent of about 400 metres, uh, but it wasn't uh, an overly difficult, although it was a bit wet at times. Right, okay. And then day three, 
uh, you'd planned to do 18.4 and you did 12.3. So that sounds like a hard day. Yeah. Now, that was up over the Ironbound Ranges. Uh, the recommendation for that is six to nine hours. I think it took me 12 hours. Wow. Um, and it wasn't so much the ascent up. That was hard. There's no argument about that. It was the descent down. And as I said, even regardless of whether you're travelling as a group or as a solo hiker, the last thing you want to do is sprain an ankle or break a leg. And if you push yourself by trying to go too fast, and I was walking down creek bed for most of that descent, um, it was a slow process uh, and there are advantages to being tall when you had to step down. Uh, there are advantages to being short when you needed to go underneath branches and trees. <laughs> okay. Um, and day um, day four, you'd planned to do 12.2 and you did 14.4. Yep. So that sounded like um, a, a, a relatively easy trail that you were on at that point in time, noting that you were probably at a different point to where you'd planned to be. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, uh, that was uh, that wasn't an overly difficult day. Nothing nothing was as hard as coming down the Ironbound Ranges. So that, there's definitely that. Uh, but the terrain certainly varied. But I was close on the distances that I planned, uh, although I hadn't. I was starting to fall behind at this point. Right. Okay. And then day, day five, eleven point four, and you did um, ten point nine. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much where I expected to be there. And then day six, you hadn't you hadn't planned to be walking day six, um, but you did nine point five six, and day seven again you hadn't planned to be walking uh, day seven, and you did six point nine eight. Yeah, and that was into Cockle Creek into the trailhead. And was that getting easier at that point in time? From that last day was relatively easy. I'd talked to uh, I'd actually come across hikers going the other way, uh, and they said, "Oh yeah, the the, dis- the between." Uh, the last major campsite and Cockle Creek, uh, the trail is is there's a few muddy patches, but relatively uh, good condition. Uh, but there was certainly there was mud pretty much every day. So. Yeah, and you were saying that you were describing um, the hike to someone in terms of the what was it the the lunges, the squats, the <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's the thing for me. I mean, I I. I'll be honest, this was the, the physically the hardest thing that I've ever done. The Bibbulmun track, which is a 1,000 kilometres, that's all about endurance and just putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, this is an 85-kilometre track. It was harder than the Bibbulmun track. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, and as I said, it was a matter of I had periods of days, particularly within the Ironbound Mountains, where I was just step up, step up, step up for 910 metres a short section over the top of the summit and coming, starting to come down where it was walking. And then from there on it was step down, squats, lunges again, step ups, uh, climb around things. Uh, and I'd actually gotten to the stage whereby after a couple of days of that, uh, not being able to walk properly uh, because you know, I, I, just, I was just doing this almost multiple days of exercises. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the physical impact, but what about the mental impact of this um, hike on you? Um, mentally, it was fine. I mean, I must admit, I got to a stage, I thought, I've, I've had it with the mud. Um, <laughs> I think I can do without that. 
Um, it was a good trip in that respect. I learned. I have a lot. to say, your your gear was pretty whiffy when it came when you came home. Yeah, I think um, I think I made the mistake of with my um, with my pants. Uh, I didn't. I had a rain jacket on. I didn't have any rain pants on going down the ironbounds. So as a result, my rain my pants were saturated. So and again, it was it was wet enough overnight where they weren't going to dry out. So I swapped to rain pants for three days, um, and that was good. That was actually a good move. Oh, you just wore your rain pants just and rain no, pants. no trousers underneath. Yeah, yeah, it worked. It worked well. Okay, well, that's an interesting thing to do. <laughs> you couldn't do that if it was really hot, I guess. No, but yeah. So mentally, it was um, it was a matter of you had to be very much focused. I know, with, from my perspective, uh, on a trip like the Bibbleman, I'm able to go into autopilot, uh, walk. Uh, keep myself focused about what's going on. But in this trip here, it's mentally fairly taxing because you do have to pay, be paying attention to what's going on. You you can't tune out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the thing that I noticed was that, um, well, you certainly couldn't uh, phone me. I think you phoned uh, once and it was a pretty bad conversation. Um, but I was relying on the the satellite positioning um, to work out where you were and we were doing satellite messaging a little bit. So that says there's not a lot of phone coverage on this trail. Um, I must admit I didn't have my phone on the entire trip, but there was two points, the top of the iron bounds, and when you get up the iron bounds, you walk off trail about 40 metres up to a little rocky knoll, uh, and that's where people were getting te- <laughs> they were getting text messages only. Okay, uh, pe- people were very interested to hear what was going on with the, the soccer world cup. Okay, uh, but yeah, text messages only, no phone calls. Yeah, it was one bar three G, and that was it on Telstra. Um, there was another location on the second last day where I actually managed to call you, um, and that, that yeah, that wasn't a great. That, I'm not sure that I would call that a phone conversation, but yes. No, and you know, talking to the uh, Tasmanian Wilderness Experience, which is the transport company, they said it's a bit like standing on one leg with your tongue poking out to get a signal. Um, but it was a you know, it was a reliable text messaging, and as you uh, and on the very last day, coming into the last few kilometres, approaching Cockle Creek, uh, there's reasonably good phone signal on Telstra as well. Right. Okay. All right. And. Um, so some of the other things around the environment, um, what you were seeing, um, uh, I think it's a, a fire-free zone. Yeah, so it's a World Heritage area. It's a no no naked fire. So if you're cooking, it's in a, a fuel stove. It, it's um, uh, There are no – you can't just go and click firewood and start a fire. It's illegal. Uh, not that there are necessarily any rangers to come and see you, but um, – yeah, you know, if the rangers decide to drop in, and if you've got a fire, um, yeah, you know, it's an area that's fairly delicate. It 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 can be damaged fairly easily, uh, and in all honesty, that it's a it's a fairly wet environment, so um, it's not really suitable for fires anyway. So fuel stoves, uh, and because you are typically flying into Melaleuca, you can't take gas, gas. on yeah, yeah. Uh, on the trip. So what they end up doing is they. Uh, uh, they actually transport in, and I don't know how they do it. They transport in uh, gas to the uh, the aerodrome there. There's a shed there, and they you, you pay for that when you before you get on the plane, and they hand you a gas cylinder before you head off. So you were worried that they were going to hand you a big gas cylinder. Did they do that? Well, they did. They they they, they used the two thirty gram gas cylinders, uh, which worked out well actually. I I'm quite comfortable using 
a 100-gram gas cylinder on a six-day trip. Uh, and given the amount of times that I used it for this trip, 100, 100 grams would have lasted me. But if I had have had, I only have a cup of tea in the morning, and I didn't even do that all the mornings. So if you're having a, a fully cooked breakfast morning and then a cooked dinner, you probably do need the 230-gram cylinder. Right, okay. All right. And so what did you see? Um, Vegetation-wise, it was quite interesting. It's um, This is a coastal track. It is called the South Coast Track. So you are walking along sections of beach. You are walking along uh, uh, rainforest uh, and coastal vegetation. You are walking up and down over hills. Uh, and when you when you think of the, the really uh, heavy forested and mossy and ferny sort of environments, uh, there was periods where I was walking through tunnels like that, yeah. uh, complete with mud. You've got uh, a couple of videos in the um, uh, in the slideshow um, where you, you know it's just you're walking along a boardwalk and it's just beautiful um, and very lush. And then there are other parts where it's so harsh and you know very little vegetation, lots of rocks. Yeah. So there's button grass plains, which is one of the main vegetation types along the way. And again, I've, you know, you just have this picture in your mind of this stuff being sort of 30 centimetres tall, but it's, you know, in a lot of cases it's up to a metre. So it's, it's it's very, very much, that's where a lot of the water is. It's it, it's a very water-loving plant. Uh, so it's not unusual to get a lot of mud in those areas. And as a result, they've put a lot of boardwalk or folks their boardwalk in that area as well. It was definitely, as I said, even though I was aware it was a coastal walk, I was probably more coastal walking than I expected. Uh, so there was, you know, one section that was about four kilometres. Uh, there was uh, sections that were uh, uh, might have only been a couple of hundred metres. Uh, walking along the beach, you also sometimes, depending on the tides, ending up having to walk on large rocks. So you know, if the tides were a bit high, it pushed you up onto the rocks which means that slowed you right down. Right, right. Animal life was a bit variable. Uh, I was, after a couple of days, I was in my head writing an article saying there are no snakes in Tasmania. Uh, <laughs> Don't. <laughs> I, I, have, I have never seen a snake in Tasmania. I saw two on this trip. One was on the warm day uh, and I uh, saw the back end of a very small black snake scuttling off the trail, off the, off the timber boardwalk where it was obviously sunbaking. The other one was a black snake that was about 35 centimetres in the middle of the trail and I saw it and I thought, hang on a sec, why isn't it moving? And then realised um, it had a clear red fluid leaking from its head. Ooh. So I'm, yeah, I'm, And every so often it would poke its tongue out but it wasn't moving. Uh, by the look of it, I think what had happened is someone had trodden on its head uh, while it was in the middle of the trail and probably had not even noticed it. Oh, so, my goodness. Um, it wasn't It wasn't going to survive. So I, I got my tracking pole up. I lifted it. In, you know, it was very limp and not moving and just put it off the trail. But, um, yeah, it, it wasn't going to live. Other wildlife, um, paddy melons, which are one of the, the little short, stumpy kangaroo types uh, of, of animals. And the thing that did surprise me with this trip is spotted quolls. I at one of the campsites I lost my spoon. I left my uh, stove out at night time, which is what I normally do. I stupidly left my spoon, my cup, and my rubbish bag out. I got up in the morning. The stove had been knocked over, 
the spoon had gone, uh, the rubbish bag had gone, but I retrieved that and the cup was okay. And I thought it might have been a bush rat uh, and we discovered that at the next campsite or a couple of campsites further on, someone saw a quoll uh, and I saw a quoll on the last night I spent on trial the morning after. So uh, not used to seeing quolls in mainland so Australia. spoon-stealing quolls. Yeah, Australian wildlife seem to like the rubberized silicon on, on camping gear, and I don't know what it is. It's the, what's it, whether it's the taste, whether there was food still left on there, I don't know, but the spoon, spoon went. And I've had the spoon <laughs> for a number of years, so I now need to buy a new one. Was reasonable amount of bird life, uh, mainly uh, uh, little, the little birds rather than the big birds. So uh, beach birds, so little little, uh, little some of the plovers and the different types of birds. There were a number of different seabirds, seagulls, uh, and the little fairy wrens. So, but not a lot of other larger inland life, and and the weather certainly wouldn't have helped with that. So um, the other thing that um, was interesting about this hike was the were the inlet crossings. So again, another coastal walk, so you need to expect inlet crossings, and there are a number of inlet crossings. Some of them barely passed as inlets; they were quite shallow, quite narrow, and quite shallow. Uh, others were a bit different. So uh, the the comment I would make here before I talk specifically about inlets is, I. Took three pairs of socks with me. I thought that's that's a bit rare for me, um, and I typically don't use socks at night time. So these were three pairs to rotate through. Um, I my dry socks were wet within fifty meters of leaving the runway at Melaleuca. Um, <laughs> well done. <laughs> and even even you know, I'd, I'd go through and rinse them out and clean my shoes and the socks uh, and dry them out as best I could. And within half an hour of the next day, your socks socks and shoes were sopping wet again. So pretty much with the exception of uh, probably the first and the last day, uh, expect to have wet feet. Um, and you know, if having dry socks is something you really want, you're probably going to need to have two pairs a day. Lots of uh, socks. Lots of socks, yeah. So it's, it's almost a losing battle. Yeah, okay. So um, the inlet it's, crossings then. Okay, so the inlet crossings tended to vary. Uh, quite often they were just a matter of walking through ankle-deep sort of water, and they weren't really an issue. Uh, sometimes uh, there was probably one of the best-known ones is the uh, New River Crossing, which is at Pryon, uh, and that's where you have you cross the inlet in a boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are currently two boats there. Apparently they are looking at putting a third boat in, uh, and there is supposed to be one boat on each side, although that doesn't always happen. And unfortunately what that means is if there's not a boat on your side, you've got two choices. You either turn around and head back to Metaluka or you wait until someone comes the other way and brings a boat across. Oh. So this is why they're trying to put a third boat in there. So the, that was a, a bit of a hard crossing in some respects. So the, the crossing was probably about 90 metres and most of it was probably only 40 or 50 centimetres deep with a, a deeper section in the middle. Um, but you put a life jacket on, you put a couple of oars on, you need to drag the boat down to the water. So the ideal is to actually turn up to pry on at high tide so you've got to minim- minimise your boat drag. Uh, I'm a large, fairly strong guy and it took me a while and a fair bit of effort to get this boat down. I just had to get a – it was almost like a little jumping motion that had uh, – 
um, you know, get the pointy bounce it down a bit, bounce it down the uh, the boat. Yeah, so you get the pointy end pointing towards the the water, uh, and then just bounce it progressively down. Once you get it in, it's okay. You then row across, and if you've never rowed a boat before, that's always a bit of a challenge. I uh, did. I did wonder. It's probably been a while since you've rowed a boat. Tim. It, it's been a while, but I have done rowing before. But it was just a matter of. Uh, I realised there were different length oars, so I'm trying to work out <laughs> halfway <why>. across. <laughs> you realise that <laughs> I'm thinking, why is it? Why? Why is one? I don't know. I tend to be dominant in one arm, but why is one arm making so much a difference than the other? So yeah, make sure you get the same length oars. Um, you get across to the other side. I drop my pack and my tracking poles across. I then had to get the other boat and get it in the water and attach it to my boat. Uh, attach some more oars in there because most of the oars are on the other side, uh, bring some extra life jackets over because most of them are on the other side, go back over, attach one boat back onto the uh, the clip again, uh, which means dragging it out of the water. Oh, my goodness. Putting, putting the um, the life jackets away, putting the, tra- the poles back in that little slot uh, and then rowing back again. So you typically get three trips. Uh, this is where having a group would be helpful uh, a to get the boats in the water, but it means not everyone would have to do three trips. Yeah, yeah, you um, can you can rotate the rowing. Uh, but certainly, as I said, they're, 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 apparently the plan is to put a third boat in there, which means there'll be two on one side, one on the other, which potentially may mean you might only have to do one trip, depending on which direction you're coming from. Right. Okay. So, but that was a, that was an interesting one, uh, and I found, as I said, I found most of it. I'm thinking, why am I why am I hitting what am I hitting? And again, I was hitting the hitting the bottom. So there was. Uh, uh, it was only really that section in the middle that was a bit deeper. Uh, I must admit, I think had there have been no boat there, I probably would have been inclined to see if I could get across with my pack. Uh, not recommended, but given the, uh, uh, the the choice of turning around and going back or waiting a day, it's a potential. And and you were talking about an, another, there's an iconic photo where um, people are holding on to um, a, a bit of rope and, uh, walking across. Yeah, so there are inlet crossings, which are basically where the, where the creeks or rivers are hitting the ocean, uh, but there are also stream crossings further up upstream. So there are a few of those, and there's um, ones that are really well known within the guidebooks, and you, you see this brownie-coloured water because of the, the tannins Tannin. off the plants, uh, and there's a rope and people are walking. Go, go down a little set of wooden stairs, walk across holding the rope for stability, uh, and then walk up a set of wooden stairs on the other side. Now, uh, if it was high water, the rope would, or, or the, the the creeks were moving fast, the rope would be good. Uh, but one thing you don't realise is that to the right, if in the direction I was heading, which was from west to east, uh, a metre and a half away from the rope, the water's about 40 centimetres shallower. <laughs> so if you're walking using the rope, it means you're walking in the deepest part of the creek. Uh, and given that there was, wasn't much movement, uh, I and the other people that were, were crossing were just ignoring the rope and just walking into the shallows. Right, okay. Made things a lot easier. Okay. There are other inland crossings as well, and there's a couple in the guidebook that are classed as dangerous at high tides. Now, I could see that being the case. So in the case of high tide, strong onshore winds, uh, heavy rains pushing a lot of water down a creek, yes, you would need to cross at low tide. Um, in most cases, there wasn't as much water as there potentially could have been. Uh, the deepest inlet that I had was the last inlet 
coming into the last campsite, and I ended up being waist depth water. Uh, and and my plan was I'll I'll walk across, I'll use the tracking poles to test the depth just to see where it is, and uh, you know if I need to, I'll turn around and work out where I where I best need to cross. I got over halfway across and thought, well, it's just about here now and kept on going, uh, except I then realised my phone and my camera were in my pocket, <laughs> my rain jacket, so having to hold the tracking poles and hold my rain jacket uh, a bit higher than I normally would do to keep the electronics out of the water. Oh, that's, that wasn't um, great, yeah. But, yeah, it was, uh, that was much easier than I thought and that was uh, the tide was still coming in at that point, uh, but it worked well. And because, uh, because it's tidal, uh, Tide chart is an ex, uh, an essential piece. Yeah, of so whether you, whether you download uh, have an app on your phone uh, that has the next seven days with a tide chart for your your trip, or whether you have a you print one off from from online before you come in, really the choice is yours to work out when you ne- best need to get there. A couple of other crossings as well. Um, there was one crossing that was only about forty centimeters, fifty centimeters deep. Uh, only probably about six metres wide, but it was moving quite moving quickly, fast, quite quickly yep. with water coming out. Uh, and that one was uh, it required you to take slow steps and brace us all for the tracking poles. Right, okay. All right. So having said all of that, um, when's the best time to do this hike? From what I can understand, the best time to do the hike is probably mid-January through to around about mid to late March. Um, but again, for me, uh, I just wanted to do it before Christmas. I had the time available. So I think that was when I went. Well, I would go through and look at that. Okay, all right. And how did the guidebook go in terms of guidance? Um, the guidebook was good. In all honesty, I think the guidebook is essential. I think it's worthwhile having. Uh, it does actually. It's what it does something that I like really well in that it has an east to west and a west to east option. Uh, most got, but most books don't do that. They have one direction. One direction, then you have to turn yourself inside yeah, out to work out the other direction. Yeah, and it, it works pretty well there. And this is because a lot of people who are walking the South Coast Track and Port Davy Track combined will often leave from Cockle Creek um, and get picked up at the end of the Port Davy Track. Uh, by road transport. So um, it, it's good in that respect. Um, one comment I would make here, and at the trailhead at Cockle Creek, there's a sign by Parks Tasmania that says, if you are using the guidebook, be aware that the timings aren't as accurate as they could be, and and some people take longer. Uh, and I think that's not unrealistic. I think um, you do need to allow six to eight days to do this walk, um, and I would suggest unless it's really dry conditions and has and had had no rain for a long period, you're not going to do it in that four to five day period. Yeah, and I think the other thing is to watch out for is that even if it is really dry, um, if it's really hot, then some of those climbs are going to be pretty tough and will slow you down as well. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. What must you take on this hike? Okay, definitely need rain gear, and I think that includes rain pants as well. Uh, as I said, I had three days. I probably should have um, been wearing rain pants uh, coming down the iron bounds. Um, I was worried about shredding them more than anything else, but I had a new pair of rain pants, which were much more durable, and they lasted really well. Uh, but it's um, uh, as a result, I ended up getting sopping wet pants, which, <laughs> which forced me into rain pants for the next three days, and it, did, and it worked well. Right. So rain jacket, rain pants, uh, tracking poles are a must. Um, there is just no way you can maintain foot footing without falling over. 
I think I probably fell over four times uh, in, in total. Uh, once I lost a fight with a very small stick um, and pushed it out of the way and it pushed back and <laughs> it, was an, it was a very small stick, I can tell you. Uh, it was enough pressure just to push me off balance and I fell over into the, into the shrubbery. Um, uh, I think um, I set a clothesline of some sort uh, and it doesn't have to be a formal clothesline, but even a pair of a piece of blind cord that you can hang up your gear to dry off at night time, if that's possible. Now, you, if you're going to do that, you need to have a, a tarp or something that uh, you can dry your gear underneath. The one day I did manage to dry my gear, I was under a heavy, uh, dense uh, bush uh, that had a, 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 almost a solid cover over the top, and there was no, it was wind. Uh, and there was no uh, rain that night, yeah, so okay. that allowed me to dry my pants off at least, not my socks. Um, I would um, uh, suggest tide chart, definitely there as well. Um, I would also suggest carrying some extra food. So if you plan on doing it in six, uh, make sure uh, you've maybe got an extra day, day and a bit of food. Uh, I did. Uh, my food taste changed on this hike. I just lost all interest in cereal. Uh, so I ended up not eating my cereal for uh, all but one day. Uh, and had I been desperate, I could have eaten cereal for a few days. Um, I would have probably preferred one extra nighttime meal just for a hot meal at the end of the day. Yeah. Instead, I had dips and bread, which was filling, but I would have liked the, the hot meal. Yeah, okay. And uh, the other thing that was pretty rank when you came home were your gaiters. Yeah, no, definitely. Gaiters are a must. Um, there was full length, full, full length, full length gaiters, and there was a couple of reasons I, I wore gaiters. One was I, my concern about snakes in Tasmania, um, but I think there's probably two main reasons for wearing gaiters. One is the mud, and that's to keep mud off your clothing. Um, that time that I actually sunk into the mud to crotch depth, had I have not had the gaiters, I think I would have lost my shoes. Uh, and then spent the next few hours digging out a mud heap uh, to try and <laughs> head <retrieve>. down <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the mud, trying to retrieve shoes. So the fact I had the the gator straps underneath and they were attached to my legs meant that my shoes stayed put where they should be. Um, the thing that really does surprise me with gators, I see a lot of hikers wear shorts and gators, and without fail, they're the ones that had leeches uh, on them. So they'd end up with leeches getting in on the over the top of their gaiters and then oh, down. And, and, and working their way down. Wow, okay. So, uh, Or else getting underneath and working their way up. Whereas I had long pants. <coughs> I did get gaiters. Uh, I, I did get leeches, um, but it was mainly on my hand. I had one on my lip at one stage. Oh. Uh, and it was only because it was being greedy. It was rather than attaching itself, it was just worming its way across my lip. And I flicked it off, but... Uh, you know, it should have just decided that, hey, here's a real nice juicy spot, why don't I just attach and mm -hmm. just kept on going. It was lucky I wasn't there because when you flicked it, you would have flicked it onto me because yeah. that's usually the thing that happens. And I did have um, my shoes uh, end up getting a hole in the, at the front and that's because my right shoe is, is a size too big to cater for my left uh, and I was actually with my toes, I was putting pressure up and put a hole in the, the material at the front. So I was trying to work out how I ended up with this big fat leech Inside my shoe, inside my sock. Now, I know it got inside the hole in my shoe. I just don't know how it got inside my sock. <laughs> okay. It was very fat and happy when I got, got rid of it. It had fallen off at the end of it. So who's this trip for? 
Okay, this trip is for probably our classes, two sorts of people, experienced hikers who have done a lot of hiking uh, that are good and can think on their feet. So basically experienced hikers. Or if you're not experienced, um, someone with an experienced group leader that can look after you and do a lot of the logistical side of things and can talk you through the process. I wouldn't recommend this trip to inexperienced hikers. If you haven't done the overland track, don't try and do this one. Uh, the overland track does not do this one justice. Uh, but if you struggle doing the overland track, this one will be very difficult. So yeah, yeah it's for, it really is for experienced hikers. And as you say, uh, this this is wilderness hiking. I mean, you know, you've you've got makeshift campsites where there's one seat for you know several people. Um, you've got to go in search of the the uh, the, the the toilet. Uh, to not always close to the campsite um, and there's no kitchen shelter or anything like that. So, you know, you're out, out, out in the elements, whatever that might mean for the particular time that, that, yeah, that, that you're there and you need to be able to cope with that. And I think, I think the real thing is with this is that um, if, um, if you have a problem, you know, I was solo hiking but there are plenty of other people around but if you're solo hiking and there's no one there and something goes wrong, what do you do? And that's that having that experience and having the the ability to think, okay, well, these are my choices or I can wait, I can turn around, I can set off my emergency beacon, whatever the case may be. Uh, and having the ability to, to think that through uh, only comes with experience. Um, but, yeah, I, I for me, this was the physic as I said, the physically the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and I uh, wouldn't have wanted to do this having virtually no overnight experience at all. Um, so trip highlight, what was the big highlight? Uh, the trip highlight was ascending the iron bounds. Um, I talked to a, another hiker who had come the other direction, and she said when she crossed it, it was white out and heavy rain, so she didn't get any views. We went up there, we probably had... Uh, the warmest weather of the whole trip, it was probably getting 18, 19 degrees, I'm estimating, uh, and the views down to the ocean and across the plains were just spectacular. Right. Uh, yeah, and every time you'd go up another bit, there'd be different views to different directions. So that was really the highlights. Right, and probably should have um, done this the other way around because I'm now going to ask you about the low light. So it's not good to finish <laughs> on a low light, is it? And that's descending the iron bounds on the other <laughs> side. Um, the weather, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the mud hole? that you fell in no that was only a short-term thing so I mean I was bored it was borderline but it was just um, th there was a number of hours where you were just having to be so focused on where you're putting a foot where you're putting the tracking poles um, and what you uh, what you needed to focus on it was a lot of hard work I could have uh, it was interesting but I could have done without that yeah yeah so we've had a bit of a tour of your experience on uh, the South Coast uh, track and, um, you know, I guess we've talked about what what uh, the experience is, um, that you need to be have experience uh, to do it or be with experienced people and more importantly um, take the gear that you need. And I think the last thing I would say is expect the unexpected. <laughs> Def definitely. And I think one thing with this trip is um, it's really going to depend, the experience you have is going to depend on the weather conditions which will impact the trail. So I could go back and do this in two months' time 
in very dry conditions and have a totally different experience than what I had this time. Um, and that's not guaranteed. It could be wetter in two months' time. It could be drier. But I would expect the conditions to be better. Uh, so it's it's not one of these sort of ex- ex- trips where you can say this is what it will be. It's it's one of these trips where it's potluck. You get what you get, uh, and you you make the best of it. Now, one final comment I would make through here, and it was the discussion with another hiker was. This trail is not about the distance. When you look at this trip and you say, 85Ks, I can do that in three, four, five days, it's really easy. Uh, I had periods for extended periods where I was only traveling at one kilometer an hour or less. So, um, you know, it's not the sort of thing where you can say, I can can push through this and knock it off in three or four days. Uh, You possibly could do in really good conditions. Uh, but yeah, it's it's all about what the conditions are and the impact on the track. And I just keep the will the word that, that keeps coming back to me is wilderness. It's a wilderness trail. Yeah. Um, it's for experienced people. And um, the the other descriptor you give is it's potluck. So whatever happens on the day, whatever happens in that week around the weather and the conditions is what you get. And there is discussion about whether they are going to increase boardwalks and put um, huts or shelters of some sort along there, and that will change the experience. So the group of nine that were there, they wanted to do it before that happened. And certainly you know, in five or 10 or 15 years' time, if they do put more boardwalks in, if they do put uh, more facilities in, uh, huts and shelters and things like that, it'll totally change the experience. So really this is one of the last real wilderness experiences around Uh, And if that's what you're after, definitely worth looking at. Okay, that's great. All right, we hope you've enjoyed this expectations versus realities view of the South Coast track. And if you're planning on doing it, that might be a bit of a a help to you in, in an upcoming trip. But otherwise, thanks very much for listening in on this. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.